can tell by the size of this crowd that you all feel a lot like I felt earlier, super tired during the first gathering. Hey, real quick, this background that we've done, this, this series is my favorite background we've done. You guys check out this background. That's my favorite. I love it. I actually think it's one of the best ones we've ever done. So I hope your weekend was good. My weekend was good. I mean, something special happened this week. I got some, I got some new glasses. You, what are you guys you guys, What? Come on. You like them? That just means my wife was wrong. She was wrong. Yeah, there, there goes my notes, by the way. She's running my notes, so I can't find... Anyway. Last week, we started a series, just launched last week, called Who, we, Who Are You? And last week, I tried to kind of just lay out my cards, right? Just kind of lay it all on the table, lay the groundwork for the fact that I believe we are all in desperate need. We all desperately desire to know who and what we are. And so the question, right, this is a simple question, who, who are you? I said the writers of Scripture kind of lay out a, a framework for how we define who we are, how you define who you are, how I define who I am. And I call them levels. Uh, these levels that started out with this first one, it was a simple one. We're all human beings. You're all human beings. Congratulations. And we're all made in the image of God. We're all distinct amongst creation somehow, some way. It's been given to us and to us alone to have a mental, emotional, spiritual component the rest of creation does not have. As much as you think your dog loves you, your dog is, is not thinking about what happens to them when they die. They're not concerned about their retirement. They're not concerned about the relationship with their girl. They, they, they're not concerned about those things. And so you and I, we, we are alone. We possess the image of God. The, the second way we, we kind of define who we are, our identity, is what I call this overarching general identity. And general identity has everything to do with what you and I do with the person and the work of Jesus. And, and from that point, as we, we are all human beings, and then our, our general identity, we're kind of separated out into two different categories. Uh, one of those is you're a child of God. Uh, anyone who has put their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, they are a child of God. And, and then there's one other category, really just only other, one other category, and that is what Paul calls a child of wrath. And again, I said it last week, I know that can be offensive to some of you, so let me just kind of explain what child of wrath really means. What we learned last week is, and what the Apostle Paul reminded us of is that we all fall into this category at some point in our lives. It just simply means that you have decided. You have decided, not that God has decided, but you have decided that you make a better God than God. You've got it more figured out than he does. You're, you're smarter than he is. You, you know what's best for you, which again, just to be clear... We've all done it. We've all been there at one time or another. And God's response is simple. It's simple and scary. God's response is to say, this is what you wanted. Here you go. And just as Paul tells us that he turns us over to do what ought not be done. So that should be scary for all of us. This, this whole idea of general identity. I said it last week. It's kind of like the first button on your shirt, you get this first button right, which I don't have buttons today, but if you get this first button right, you kind of got a shot for the rest of your shirt. But you get this first button wrong, and so many of us get the first button wrong. So many of us have decided to try and determine the who and what we are by the following framework, the framework we looked at last week. Looking in, looking around, and then looking up. We look inside of ourselves, and we dig deep inside of ourselves to find ourselves, and we find the desires 
within ourselves, never minding the fact that some of them kind of don't work out. We just grab the one that, that is the strongest, and we take this one, and we set this one up on high, and we say, this is my identity. This is my personhood. This is who I am. And then we search. We search for the people who will affirm that in us. We search for the people who will tell us that what we believe to be true really is true. Uh, we search for people who tell us that we're doing the right thing, and we make them our community. And then when we find ourselves still lacking when we find ourselves still wanting, then we're not opposed to spirituality. We just have to find the spirituality that makes this desire work. And then we take that spirituality and we sprinkle it on top. That's the framework that so much of the world finds themselves in. You probably have found yourself there as well. And we kind of ended last week, kind of the main idea was that you're not self-defined. You're God-defined. You're not self-defined. You're God-defined. And the third way, the third way that the writers of Scripture tell us about how we find out who and what we are is what we call specific identity. And specific identity is what we're diving into today. Think of this. If, if, if last week general identity is that first button, specific identity is, well, it's the entire rest of the shirt. If you're not self-defined, but you're God-defined, what is it that defines us? Uh, what is it that makes us who we are? If our general identity is defined by what we do with the person and the work of Jesus, then what was the work of Jesus? And then what did it accomplish for us? Who are we based on what Jesus has done for us? That's the next four weeks. The next four weeks. In the premier mine, which is actually in South Africa in 1905, a guy named Frederick Wells found the largest diamond that's ever been found on earth. It was 3,106 carats. It's a type 2A diamond with D clarity. It is the perfect stone. It, right now it resides, as, as you may have guessed, if I gave you some time, in the Tower of London in England. They kind of had a way back then of snatching up things from around the world that didn't belong to them. And so it's in the Tower of London. And if, and if you could go there right now and you had the opportunity to hold it in your hands, and you won't, <laughs> if you could ever hold it, it's the size of a softball. And if you held it in your hands and held it up to the light, as you turned it around, you would see that in every direction, every angle, it would refract light in just a little bit of a different way. It would be mind-bogglingly beautiful. It would be stupefyingly beautiful in every single direction that you looked. In fact, I think it would be hard to remind yourself over and over again, this is an actual diamond, like a diamond diamond, not, not something I won at the carnival. This is an actual a diamond, and I, and I heard this used as a, as a kind of a metaphor to describe the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. That the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that there, there's all these different ways that we can kind of look at the gospel. And every angle that you turn and every, every new refraction of light, it illuminates something new and something special and even more beautiful than we thought we knew. I kind of hinted at this idea last week that the gospel... Even if you have some understanding of what it is, it's just so much bigger. It's just so much better, so much more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And yet still, it's, it's so accessible. But certainly many of us are at best a little unclear of what the gospel is. Some of us in the room, and I hope some of us watching, have no idea what the gospel is. And so let me just break it down simply. The gospel is simply this, that God created the world in perfect harmony. There's no disease, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no shame. All aspects of creation playing out perfectly. 
then sin enters the cosmos and fractures everything. Everything, all the way down to a cellular level, all the way out to the furthest reaches of the universe, man's rebellion against God fractures everything. But God, but God who is great in love, the long-suffering love of God doesn't then turn to destroy man, but moves towards man in grace by sending himself, by sending Jesus, the, the second person of the triune God, and, and, and Jesus lives a perfect life that's evaded you and I since the moment we breathed oxygen. And then he's murdered. And he's hung on a cross. And there on that cross, he absorbs all of God's wrath towards those who would choose to believe in him. And he purchases the redemption of all things by his blood. Visible, invisible, kings, kingdoms, all things purchased by his blood, for those who would believe upon his name by grace through faith. And through his resurrection, we see that regardless of our backstory, regardless of our present struggles or our future struggles, those who have put their faith in Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life are seen as spotless and blameless in his sight. There's the gospel. That Jesus is making all things new. Now, now, the simplicity of that gospel, like, it, you, there's multiple ways with which you can look at it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the different ways with which we look at the beauty of the gospel, it should increase our worship of him. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and it is my hope that today and throughout the rest of this series, that when we look in at the gospel, that it would woo you in. It would woo you into the best news the universe will ever know. And so that's what we're going to do. For the next four weeks, we're going to look at the gospel from a few different angles. Today, we're actually looking at justification. Justification, if you grew up in the church or have some background in the church, you may have heard it said as if, just as if I've never sinned, which is kind of right. But, but that idea is so, so incomplete. Justification isn't that he takes you back to Eden. Not only is it just as if you've never sinned, but it's also kind of made you like a spiritual billionaire. It's so much bigger than just as if you've never sinned. Justification isn't just that you're forgiven. It's far, far bigger than that. We'll get to that in just a bit. Week three, we're going to look at new creation. This idea that the gospel transforms our entire being. Everything about us is completely different because of the truth of the gospel. In week four, we'll look at adoption and man. That before the foundation of the earth was laid, he knew you. And that he saw you. And when he saw you, he said, I want him. And I want her. Listen, if, if nobody else wants you, if nobody wants you, Jesus does. And then we'll end this whole thing with redemption. And man, I'm telling you how beautiful the thought of redemption that nothing is wasted by God. No tear, no hurt, no wound, no battle, no pain. All is redeemed. And not only redeemed, weaponized against the one who tried to use it to destroy you. That's redemption. And so there you go. There's kind of intro number two, if you will. Week one, first button. Week two through five, the rest of the shirt. Have you guys ever seen Dark Knight Rises? 
something, a head nod, anything. Dark Knight Rises, it may be... It definitely is the best Batman movie there was, I'm sure of it. If you remember in Dark Knight Rises, we're introduced to Catwoman, which whatever. Like, I'm not here to see Catwoman. I want to see Batman. But anyway, in this movie, Catwoman, she's looking for something called the clean slate. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but spoiler alert, it came out in 2012, so it's on you if you haven't seen it. She's lived this kind of life where her past has kind of caught up with her. And it's, it's weighing heavy and it's hard pressing her present so much so that she can't imagine her own future. So there's this promise of this thing called a clean slate. And if she can get her hands on it, if she can get her hands on the clean slate, she can erase her past. She can place hope into her present. And she can move on into the future that she desires for herself. And so I don't think Christopher Nolan, no matter how brilliant he is, was trying to give us a picture of justification but I do believe Christopher Nolan was trying to draw you in, to, to appeal to you and draw you into the, a deeper story because he knows it's what you want. He knows it's desperately what you need is a clean slate. And if you don't know that yet, I would just assume it's because you haven't lived long enough. See, Christopher Nolan may not know anything about justification, but he knows you need it. And so what I want to do today is really kind of give an explanation of what justification is, but really more importantly, what justification is not. See, the first thing to know is that the word justification, it means just, it means right. In, in the original Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, not that you care about Greek, but it really just means the same thing as justification and righteousness. They're really the same root word. And so when we say the word justification, we're saying just, we're saying right, we're saying clean in front of God. As a follower of Jesus, when God sees you, he sees you as blameless, spotless, and holy. That's justification. We're going to look at a letter written by a guy named Paul. We're actually going to look at two of them. I'm going to jump between them today, but they're both written by Paul. This first one is to the church in Galatia. Yeah, that's right. I almost said that wrong. This is Galatians 2. Here we go. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Gentile, really, if you don't know what that means, if you weren't born a Jew then you're a Gentile. I would assume that's most of us in the room. Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so there's two things going on here, really. And we, the first thing we see Paul, what Paul's going to argue here is that you're not justified via your heritage. So the Jews who thought they had right standing with God, uh, the Jews who thought they were just, who, th who thought they were clean in front of God because of their historic identity as the people, the chosen people of God, when in all actuality, they weren't justified by that at all. Uh, kind of the way to pull that into some practical 2023 stuff, here's how that would go for you. You can't be born a Christian. Your daddy's love and devotion to Jesus does not get imputed to you. It's his and his alone. You're not saved because you were born into a Christian home. You're not even saved because you were raised in the church. You cannot justify yourself via your heritage, and you cannot justify yourself in the eyes of God by piggybacking on someone else's faith in the grace and the goodness of God. The second thing Paul's going to argue here is that you're not justified by works 
of the law. See, Paul actually breaks that down, I think, a little bit better in another letter that he wrote to the church in Rome when he says this, but now the righteousness, remember the rightness, the justice of God has been manifested, it's been made visible, we can see it apart from the law. So God's justice has been made visible to us apart from the law. You want to know what the justice of God is? If you're looking out at the brokenness of the world and you're thinking to yourself, like, this is really evil. This is really broken. And, and how could God be just when the world is so broken? This is a very real question. It might be a very real question for you. You might be asking yourself, how is God just if even I can see all the brokenness in the world? Well, Paul tells us. You, you want to see God's feeling towards the brokenness of our world? Look to the cross of Jesus. Look to the death of his perfect son. He hates it. He hates it so much that Jesus came and died so that the world and everyone in it wouldn't be devoured and destroyed by God's wrath. You see, the rightness and the justice of God has been made visible to us. We can see it, and we see it apart from the law. And he goes on. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although, although this next phrase he says is, might seem weird to us or kind of odd to us, but it would have made perfect sense to the people he was speaking to. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so the law and the prophets, it, it's simply re referring to the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. So when they say law and prophets, that, that's what he's speaking about. And how do the law and the prophets bear witness to the justice of God and the sending of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, but it's both awful and awesome. See, the law and the prophets, they exist to help you see that you're not a good person. I mean, look at me. Like, we're friends. We're, we're friends. You're a terrible person. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what about my self-esteem, Matt? I don't, I don't care about your self-esteem. That's, that's not why I stand up here at all. Let's do it this way. I, I've done this once before, but it's, it's always such a fun, demoralizing game for all of us. So let's play together, right? <laughs> the Ten Commandments. You, you don't have to have a church background. You, you don't have to have ever been to church to kind of at least have some idea that they exist, at least, even if you can't recite them all. The Ten Commandments, they, they'd be found in the Old Testament. They'd be found in the law and the prophets section we were just talking about. And they're so simple, right? So simple we teach them to children. They're not complex ethics here. They're pretty straightforward. But let me tell you, you get a zero on that test. And you're like, you don't know me. I don't need to know you. Like, you're a human. We all get a zero. But let's play the game anyway because it's fun. I like it. How many, and this is a real game. I want to see some hands here. How many of you at various times would say that you love other things more than you love God? Let's just stop right there. See, right out of the gate, you're an idolater. And you can't play this game where like, yeah, sometimes, sometimes I pursue things and I cherish things and I want things more than I want God, but I'm not an idolater. That's just, I just do those things sometimes. What about this one? Anyone ever lie? My assumption is if your hand's down, you're just simply proving my point in the negative. <laughs> but this is, 
we do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. I might lie a little bit, but I'm not a liar. Anyone ever, this is a tough one, right? Any one of you ever really like it when something bad happens to someone you thought deserved it? Or, or the flip side, you got upset when something good happened to somebody that didn't deserve it? Okay, okay that's coveting. And coveting is accusation against God. It's an accusation against him and his sovereignty and the way that he chooses to reign. And you're saying it's not fair. It's not fair. I understand it more than you do. That's coveting. And there's two more. So uh, surely if you know them well, in your head you're thinking, I at least get 20%. Right? I get 20%, which still isn't passing, by the way. Let's be clear. Anyone murder anybody? I'm assuming I'm going to see fewer hands for that one. And if I do see hands, people are going to get a little uncomfortable with that one. But Jesus would say, do not murder, but if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty. I don't know that we really believe that one as much. Do not commit adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty. You get a zero. And once again, I'm not throwing any stones here. I I do too. It's not by any work of the law that justifies us before a holy God. It's not our morality that gives us right standing or makes us just. You're a coveting, lying, murderous, adulterer. That's who you are. And he goes on. He says this, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, meaning there is no asterisk, there is no outlier. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So that justification, justification is a free gift and nothing more. To be justified is to believe by faith that Jesus has paid your bill in full. It's paid. It's done. But yet I've heard it said... People have said this to me multiple times. You may have heard it too in conversations that you've had. Somebody who's just coming to understand some of this, they say things like, it's just really hard for me. It's really hard for me to believe that all I have to do is have faith. It's really hard for me because I know my past. It's it's really hard for me because I know what's going on in my life Right now, it's hard for me to believe that all I have to do is believe and my slate is wiped clean. It's really that simple? Come on, now. And here's what I'd say. Yes, but zoom out. Yes, it's, it's really that simple, but, but step back and let's get some perspective. Your justification My justification, our slate being wiped clean, your bill being paid in full has been made possible by the death of Jesus. He let people spit on him. He let his own creation mock him and slap him. And he let someone who he knitted together in the womb rip the beard out of his face and beat him bloody. And then his 
own creation walked him to a tree that he held together. And they took metal out of the ground that he spoke into existence and they drove it through his hands and they drove it through his feet and that's what your justification costs. So yes, throw yourself on the finished work of Jesus. It is that simple, but it's not just your faith that makes it happen. It came at such a cost. Such a cost to get me out of that mess I was in such a cost to pay your enormous bill that you racked up. Such a cost to, as Paul says in Colossians, cancel your record of debt. It came at such a cost. And I kind of want to show you a picture of what this looks like, a a way for us to kind of look in on a a story, maybe look at it as if it was kind of like a movie and and see a, a little picture of what this actually looks like. And this is in Luke. Luke had an account He wrote an account of Jesus' life. And this is actually Luke quoting Jesus when he was telling a story. They call them parables. Uh, Parables are actually sometimes very difficult to try and understand exactly what they want us to understand in the parable, what Jesus wanted for us to understand. Thankfully for this one, he tells us right off the bat what we're supposed to try and figure out. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up to a temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this. And just to give you an idea, a Pharisee, think kind of like a blue check famous Christian, if you will. He's got the YouTube channel you go to for resources. Like you may not know exactly what it looks like to follow God, but you would look to him and say, no, I think I want to do it the way he does. That's a Pharisee. And I've kind of racked my brain trying to think of some modern day moral equivalent to a tax collector. You see, tax collectors were Jews who purchased the right from Rome, an occupying military force that was brutal in regards to rape, murder, and injustice. And they purchased that right from Rome to raise an insane percentage of taxes against their own people to then pay for the occupying force to remain in Jerusalem, all while making themselves ridiculously wealthy. That's a tax collector. I don't know a good moral modern day equivalent but if there's a good guy and a bad guy he's certainly the bad guy and the pharisee goes on and he prays this god i thank you that i'm not like that other man or like other men in general or extortionists unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector i mean i fast twice a week and i give tithes of all that i get and there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with the prayer he's just simply saying thank you god that i have not failed. Thank you, God, that I haven't slipped like so many others have. I haven't used my authority as a Pharisee to take from my people. I've not been unjust. I have not committed adultery. In fact, in turn, I I give. In fact, I, I actually fast twice a week. Nothing wrong with what he had to say. He has fulfilled the law. He's done what he was supposed to do, but the tax collector standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the picture. 
there's a moment coming for you. There's a moment coming for you by the grace of God, by the extreme mercy of Jesus, that you will become acutely aware of the fact that you're not what you thought you were. That your view of who you are will be painfully confronted by what you actually are. And in that moment, in that moment of extreme mercy, you'll be at the crossroads of your life in that very moment. And you'll either turn and try and justify yourself. You will, just like the Pharisee, you'll look back on all the things that you've done, what you've accomplished. You'll stack up your own victories and your own trophies and how you're not like others. You will find everything inside of you, all the darkness that you don't think is there, and it will try and drag your attention to justify yourself. To begin to think and remember that you did this. You accomplished this. You made this happen. You're not like them. And this is so prevalent. Or, like the tax collector, you will throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus with no attempts to try and justify yourself. No other thoughts except to be in awe of the fact that Jesus would love a person like you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, these are the things that have to take place. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is how you got saved. I don't know what moral improvements you've made since you put your faith in Jesus, but I can tell you to trust in those would be pretty foolish. I don't know what moral betterments you've made since the day that you placed your faith in him, but to think that that's what's getting it done for you, that would be pretty dumb. See, this is salvation. That in that moment, in the moment that it becomes clear to me that I have fallen short of the glory of God, I can either try and justify myself. I'm pretty good. I really haven't done that much. Look how broken everything else is. At least I'm not like that guy. I've actually done some pretty good things. I've even given money to charity. And in that crossroads, you'll choose the path of death. You'll choose the path of self-rightness. And in that reality, the reality of who you are, it will erode your present and it will destroy your future because you're not righteous. You're, you're not in your essence a good person. By what standard are you a good person? It took me about 45 seconds to prove you're a liar, adulterer, coveter who thinks they can counsel God. It wasn't that hard. So in that moment, when we're at that crossroads, we fling ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and we ask him, we ask him to be the forgiver of and the payment for our violation of sin against the holy God. And then we follow him as Lord and leader of our lives. And that moment, that moment, justification happens. That moment you're saved once and for all. So that our testimony as a follower of Jesus is never this. It's never I used to do this and now I don't. I used to be caught in this and now I'm not. All those things, they're trophies of God's power and his grace. But, but the story is I was dead. 
I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and I threw myself on the mercy of Jesus, and he wiped my slate clean. And then he called me beloved. And I stand before him today perfect and spotless and blameless, not because I am, but because he declares me to be. Because all the wrath that was due to me because of my rebellion against him was absorbed on the cross. And in the resurrection of Jesus, that is the evidence that it was paid in full. If I still have sin that can condemn me, then Jesus would still be in the ground. If you have sin that you should continue to feel shame for and that can condemn you, then Jesus would still be dead. This is justification. So, Father of Jesus, who are you? Well, you are justified. But there will come moments. There will come moments after that justification where yet again, yet again, you'll be confronted by the reality of the fact that you're not quite who you thought you were. There are a few things in life as painful as that moment. To, to think that you were better than that. To think that you were somehow beyond that. To think that you had conquered that demon in your life. But yet again, sin finds you out. And you'll be at that same crossroads. Not with salvation on the line. That is done. That is taken care of. But with fullness of life on the line. With being all that God created you to be on the line. With your transformation on the line and you will again in that moment have to choose will I foolishly try and justify myself will I stack up my trophies over here and, and this laundry list of all the good that I've done to try and justify myself or will I once again throw myself on the mercy of Jesus will I rest in his grace and his mercy and so here's the invitation for you this morning if you're not yet a follower of Jesus it doesn't matter to the creator of the universe. It doesn't matter to your creator what's gone on in your past. It doesn't matter to your creator what you're struggling with today. He's not waiting for you to get it all figured out before he loves you. He just loves you. So the invitation for you is to throw yourself on that mercy, to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, the grace that is for you. There's a clean slate available for you, and you will not be able to fix what's broken inside of you on your own. It's far too big for you. So I just want to lay it out there. If you've, if you've never done that, if you either had some kind of different idea of what you thought it meant to follow God, if you had some different idea of what it takes to actually get to God, that you've been working to try and tip these imaginary scales that don't exist in your favor, which you'll never be able to do, man, I just want to invite you, throw yourself on the mercy of God. You're never going to clean yourself up by yourself. I just get the sense that so many of us are exhausted trying to live a life we were never meant to live. And yet Jesus is just calling you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Throw yourself on my mercy. So many of us have never felt that joy. Uh, we've never felt the peace and the life of Jesus coursing through our soul because we've never asked him to. So my invitation to you 
If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never experienced that moment of justification, if your slate has not been wiped clean, you can do that this morning. Let me pray for us. This is what it is. If, you, if, you've, if you've never done that, it, kind of back to a little bit earlier, it really is this simple and yet this complex that in this moment, you just need to believe that God loves you. He loves you so deeply. And then throw yourself on his mercy by praying a prayer just like this. Just say, God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I desperately need my debt paid. Would you be the forgiver of my sins? And Jesus, from this moment forward, would you be the Lord and the leader of my life? If you've prayed that prayer with me just now, you are justified in that moment. And now God will work to change and transform you for the rest of your life. God, we thank you so much for that truth. But there's nothing that we can do. That we can stop trying, we can stop fighting, we can stop working so hard to try and figure it out on our own. But that you've come and you've given us a way. And so, God, I pray that that truth just kind of permeates this room throughout the rest of this series as we talk about different angles of this gospel, this, this good news that you would continue to work in the hearts of those that need to know you and those that do know you, that we would rest in your goodness and grace. We love you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.